0: Hello, and welcome to season three of the E3 podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. All right, so welcome back to the podcast. This is actually the first podcast of 2021, and I'm really excited that Kylie agreed to join me. If you listened to our recording from BS and Beer, um, I was rapt attention when she was talking about her background and where she came from, and I said, Kylie, you have to come on the podcast. So welcome, Kylie. Tell us who you are and a little bit about yourself.
1: Thank you, Emily. Uh, You know this is not my uh, strong suit, so uh, I appreciate you feeling like I Uh, would make a good guest. Um, My name is Kylie Jacques and I'm the uh, senior editor at Green Building Advisor. It's a relatively new role for me. I was at Fine Home Building for nearly three years as their design editor, which is a position that um, went away during all of these changes. Um, but, uh, so I took over for Brian Pontalillo who had been in the role I'm in now. Um, and he has gone back to being the editorial director for both fine home building and green building advisor. So, um, he's my mentor and, uh, I'm responsible now for developing and posting and just, you know, correlating all of the content for GBA. So that's my main, although I am actually still contributing, this is a new development. um, I will be contributing to the print edition of each uh, fine home building uh, magazine issue um, in the form of a full story uh, construction angled piece for each issue. I should explain a little bit that um, traditionally as fine home building readers will know uh, each story is very how-to based, and um, as a result, each article is very focused on one aspect of a project. And the design content was always intended to be an opportunity to look at whole house projects. Um, However, because I would say probably 95% of the audience is um, builders, whether professional or or just serious DIYers, that was not as interesting to them, and it, and it never really scored all, all that highly. Um, so, we're gonna get rid of the design content in its traditional form, um, but we still wanna be looking at whole house projects. So, that's where I'm going to come in. Um, and, you know, I'll probably be interviewing builders more than architects, but who knows how it will play out in the end um, to get at a big picture project and some specific aspect of it. For instance, right now I'm working with um, Michael Clement who is an architect uh, in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're actually, he's on our show tonight, the and Beer show tonight. Um, and we'll be featuring a project of his that includes um walls. It was kind of an interesting design challenge. The, the uh, clients Wanted their property, their passive house certified passive house project to face due north, which presents a, a set of challenges. Um, and part of his solution was to incorporate Trom walls. So there's an article right there, how to satisfy passive house goals with a house that faces due north uh, using Trom walls. So we're going to get into the construction of Trom walls. Um, so that's the long and the short of my role at GBA and Find Home Building currently.
0: I think. That is going to be a really fascinating uh, piece in there because I know as the architect reading the, you know, the builder magazine, it's obviously great, you know, but having that whole approach to it uh, seems to feel a little building science-y to me, mm-hmm. right? And so we're thinking about the building as a whole, which I think sometimes when we focus on a specific detail which is really great so we can learn about a specific detail we don't take a look at the whole picture i know i talked with several people last year one of them being bronwyn um, out in california and she said you know our codes and things make it so that there's silos so that there's only you know certain things that you have to do we're not looking at it as a whole and so taking the whole approach from the builder aspect is actually really kind of interesting. And so I'll be excited to see how that shapes up for you. Yeah.
1: I like that idea too. I actually just spoke with, um, Mel Baser for a piece on GBA about integrated project delivery. Um, they own or are partners at Helm Construction Solutions based in Brattleboro, Vermont. And the feedback on that story, uh, just really highlighted the importance of integrated processes. Um, and I think this department or this regular contribution that I'll be making is an opportunity to highlight the interweaving of what the architect and the builder can bring to the table, you know, bring to the, t- to the client's table. What, what are you delivering? And, um, you know, my, my time has been spent, especially at Fine Home Building, trying to marry the architect and the builder in in each story, right? But it's a challenge because uh, for variety of reasons that I'm sure your listeners are are familiar with. Um, So I like to hear hear from both sides every time. Um, uh, I I think the more you can get all of those voices into an article, the stronger it is um, because they each bring such a different perspective. And I really have enjoyed Uh, listening to the nitty gritty from the builders which you do not get from the architects and I think uh, that's what our readers like to hear about most so conceptual pieces uh you know architects are great at those uh deep into the weeds how to do the thing that's where builders are gold
0: if you can manage to to uh rebuild the the <laughs> link between architects and builders. I think that you will be the most famous editor of all times. Because there's a traditional uh, architect builder challenge, mm-hmm. it seems. And um, through my practice, I've just started working with builders who want to be part of a collaborative team. And those projects are the ones that turn out so good in the end. The client is happy. The builder is happy. The architect is happy. And that doesn't mean that everything went well during construction, but it meant that everybody learned something, you know, everybody. And when you had a challenge, instead of being, you know, pointing the finger or blaming or this or that, it was like, okay, we have this thing. How are we going to come up with a solution? And then everybody on the team brings it together to figure out the solution. And those are really rewarding for architects both to get better training. Because like you said, we don't talk about the nitty gritty and the details unless you're Steve basic, let's, right, you know, right, right, <laughs> but we should all be learning from him is that we should be going to all of our job sites, whether we're getting paid for construction administration or not. And we should be asking questions like, did this detail go well? How did this go together? What was a challenge? What was difficult to get? You know, what, could have gone better? What what have you done in the past that would have been, you know, equal to what we did here and learning from that? And uh, there are a lot of builders out there who are more than willing to have a great relationship with an architect. And so I think the old mindset, we need to just let go of it, yeah. right? We yeah. need to let go of this controversial attitude between architects and builders. And if you're a builder that doesn't wanna work with architects, that's fine. There's probably a market out there. There's people out there who who wanna do that. And if you're an architect that wants to, you know have very specific builders, that's okay too. Um, and so learning to do it. And I think Christoph said in one of the BS and Beer shows also that that also includes your mechanical your structural your your all of these other trades as part of it and as a commercial architect it's very common for you to do coordination drawings to make sure that all of those things go together and like you're not running plumbing where you have ductwork where you have other things that doesn't happen as often in residential design right. um specifically mechanical seems to really be left out like oh this is how we're gonna do it and maybe even a little more so instead of less so now that we have heat pumps because it's kind of like oh well we have this heat pump but we have ventilation systems and we still have plumbing and there's still a lot of stuff that should really be coordinated that doesn't always get done and so um truly integrated design brings all of those things together yeah. and we should be working towards that as that's value added services. And, you know, people have heard me talk on the podcast before is that we need to change the value proposition of what's important for people when they're building houses, especially now that we're all working from home. And, that the office culture might be going away and we might stay working from home. We have to know how our homes react to us being there all the time. But anyway, this is not about me. This podcast is about you. So (laughs) I wanted to hear more about, uh, to totally left field transition right Uh there. Um, I wanted to hear more about during our, uh, podcast or not podcast, our recording for BS and beer, you talked about your background in, um, you you have several degrees I believe <laughs> and your background where you did a rose garden mm-hmm. and I just wanted to know a whole lot more information about okay. that because okay. I know you said it was really challenging mm-hmm. and I just wanted to to dive in so can you tell us a little bit more about that project where sure. it was what you did how long it took you to get there yeah. those kinds of things
1: yeah I don't get to talk about that project much these days anymore um and and it really was uh something I felt quite proud of. And, and it, it involved an integrated team, actually, to circle it back a little bit. Um, so this was in Seattle, Washington, where I lived for 12 years. And I had moved out there actually, because I I did, I was in the midst of a career as a horticulturist and, um, you know, living on the East Coast, uh, I had to piece together my wintertime employment, which, you know, having benefits and all of the things that come with full, full-time, full-year employment were was not happening for me. So I went to a a temperate climate where I would still know the plants um, because I had spent years and years building up that knowledge base. Um, So you have to be able to, you know, you don't, you don't move from New England to Florida and expect to have, you know, that kind of knowledge to work with. So I had to pick carefully and Seattle seemed like a great fit. And, and it certainly was. Um, So a temperate climate, um, and I worked in a lot of different settings, um, and ultimately wound up at the Woodland Park Zoo's, uh, Rose Garden. The, um, the, uh, the family that started that, uh, zoological collection lived on the property back in, I, I can't remember, um, when it was founded, but over a hundred years ago, it's probably 120 at this point. Um, but anyway, they had a two and a half- parcel of two and a half acre parcel of land that they, um, the wife was a huge rose um, enthusiast and it was planted strictly with roses. Um, That's no longer the case. It's it's a more diverse landscape at this point, but um, that is the focus. And it wasn't like I was a huge rose enthusiast, but what a wonderful institution that place is and really smart people, um, science nerds all around the horticulture department. Um, they, they very much know their stuff. And so it was uh, a big coup for me to, to land that position. Um, so I was a senior rose uh, gardener. And when I arrived, the garden was being traditionally managed, which included, a lot of um, pesticide and fungicide applications, and as a steward of the environment, that did not sit well with me. Um, and you know, also, you know, I the percentage of um, product that actually lands on the plant material is one percent, and the rest is dispersed, you know, through the wind. So, you, you know, it's not a targeted approach, and as a result, you're you know, poisoning the rest of the environment, which in this case included animals. Um, So anyway, it wasn't it wasn't a hard sell to get the team on board to change our approach. However, it's a historic landmark garden and um, there are a lot of people who care very much about that garden. You know, many marriages have happened there. A few illegal (laughs) burial sites have happened there. It's a a place that people care very, very much about. Um, So when you transition from something that's been managed with pesticides to an all organic uh, compost tea driven um, program, uh, you know, things don't go well right off the bat. So the first year, the garden looked like hell. And and I was the one out there fielding all of the complaints and concerns and questions. And that was a big piece of the project was um, signage. And you know I, I wrote all of the signage and um, the educational outreach. And we put on a lot of um, presentations to explain what we were doing. And um, I worked with um, Dan, oh, I forget his last name. And I feel terrible about that. Um, he helmed the um, composting program at the zoo, which was very involved. Um, and he's he's a scientist at heart. And we worked with um, an institution called Soil Web. I think that's it, Soil Web. Um, and they uh, helped with the formula that we needed to try to hit every week. Um, so I had this big compost tea vat and fish guts and I mean all of humus and the things that I put into that thing and and I you know brew up 900 gallons of this tea and we test it regularly it was it was such a nerd's paradise (laughs) but um it was a lot of work and and you know we would apply it um we had to figure out a whole system for application which involved 200 yards of hose and um you had to get so much of the leaf surface covered and so much of the soils, you know, so we're testing the soil to see what kind of um, bacteria and fungi ratios we were getting. And I I just learned a ton, but anybody who knows roses knows that they are subject to lots of different pests and diseases, and they look like hell if they're not glossy leaved and fully blooming. Um, So, you know, it took three years to get that garden looking Looking like it should, and um, a lot of that too is to, to find uh, resistant varieties. And if if they're not making it, you just get rid of them and, and work with products that are uh, plants that do make it. Um, so you know, I th- that project was um, important because it was an opportunity to explain to the general public why it's important to manage land in a sustainable manner, um, and it was very exciting to see people change their attitude about it because once the garden did start to look like how they wanted it to look, and we had this program going on that was uh, making it a healthy environment, um, they really were very much in support of it. And uh, I loved to watch that. I I just loved to see that. And I felt like I had made that happen Um, and it was something to feel really good about.
0: That's really exciting. Um, I know it's it's always hard when you switch to kind of like the all organics and then getting it correct and like, you know, testing the soil pH and everything else. But it kind of reminds you of, of the whole, like the the whole organic farming and stuff now was how we always did it before, right? Before we started making Roundup ready stuff and then treating it with all of these chemicals. And I talked to an architect last year um, who was down in Florida and she talked a lot about the Everglades and all these people who want grassy lawns and then they treat their grassy lawns with all this stuff. And then, you know, they have a really high water table and it floods and it does all this stuff and all that washes into the Everglades Mm -hmm. and how that's An effect on all of the other populations, you know? And then at BS and Beer, we just read the Healthy Buildings book where, you know, it talked about flame retardants in our clothes and the chemicals that are in our building materials. And So there's this direct correlation between all of these chemicals that we've been using to produce something. And so when you were talking at the end of the year about how you kind of transitioned it back to its natural form, I was like, yes, yes. You know, we don't talk a lot about um, landscape and plants. And um, my office partner is a landscape architect. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how much I've learned from her since we started sharing an office in 2018. And that goes back to that whole integrated design approach too, is I don't like to do projects without her now because there are stupid things that we just didn't think about. Like, yeah, you know what? If we don't fence this off, then we're going to pile materials. We're going to drive on it. We're going to park on it. We're going to do all this. And then we've totally compacted the soil and then nothing can grow in it because we've basically just compacted it. And it's like, that's one of those aha moments where you were like, this is really stupid. Like we could have just, this is a designated parking area. And this is like how much space you'll have to get around. And yeah, you have to leave space for the contractor to actually physically do his work, right? Like you can't be so restrictive, but if a client comes out and they're like, we love this tree and we want this tree in the front yard and you don't put up a protective barrier around that tree, you show up one day and there's siding piled up like right up to against the tree up to the root system. Because traditionally, I don't think we think about plant this way right like we kind of take for granted the stuff we have and like the root system of that tree is generally as wide as the you know the leaf system that Mm -hmm. you can see it's like we can see the leaves but we can't see all the underneath part and like (laughs) That's the that's the part that we're ignoring. It's it's the same value proposition in the building world, right? Like all this stuff that's really important in the building wall is is hidden behind the sheetrock yeah. or up in the that's attic or yeah. you know the, the all of those parts. And so you when you were talking about the uh, the rose garden, uh, I just
1: <laughs> it's funny. You uh, that's a it's that's a very good point that you make. And um, you know, of course, I'm somebody who. Uh, is very keyed into landscapes and always appreciate projects that integrate as much as possible um, the site with the, with the house. And um, it's funny, I worked for uh, six years for a landscape architect and loved their design aesthetic and the plants that they used. And, but they didn't think about just really fundamental things like, you know, in, on the, um, in the Pacific Northwest, there's a, Mahonias are a very popular plant. Um, but they have these spiky hard leaves and their sort of go-to was to plant two of them right on either side of the hose bib. So every time you went to get water, to water something, you're getting poked by these awful, you know, I almost lost an eyeball to one of those leaves at some point. So I finally made the comment, you know, you got to think about how's the client going to be working in their landscape. And you've just made this, this thorny, prickly hedge that they, they have to walk through to get to the, you know, like think about how you're going to be using your landscape, not just
0: how it looks, but how are you going to be in it, you know? Um, well, and how you want to manage it, that's mm-hmm. one thing yeah. that I learned from, from Carrie, which was really interesting, is in all building contracts, if you don't specify the landscape, because maybe the client doesn't have enough money to right. do the whole landscape right away, yeah. um, They will loam and seed, you know, like a certain amount of square footage around the house, but loam and seed is usually some form of grass. And, the grass is really hard to get rid of. Like grass is the most invasive species. It's crazy. And so I talk to my clients now about like, especially any of my clients who are headed into retirement. Like, Mm -hmm. do you want to spend an hour and a half mowing your lawn? Like, do you want an acre and a half of lawn? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you're using your gas tractor or or you're using, um, you know, a service that comes out and like, what are you doing in the grass? Like, like People who have kids and need a soccer field full of grass totally get that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we bought a house that's on the water and I have an acre and a half of mostly grass. And I called Carrie and I said, okay, you need to help me transition Mm -hmm. some of this yard out of grass because I don't want to mow an acre and a half. I don't like, I don't want to do that. And you know, here on the coast, I don't want to use pesticides on my yard Mm -hmm. or anything else. And so just some simple things with the loam and seed, and it might cost you a little bit more. But if you got some kind of low growing plant or wildflower, I've had several clients do wood chips and wildflower mm-hmm. buffers. Um, and then they have a small amount of grass, which still sort of fulfills the grass. Um, my client in Freeport actually has an electric mower. Yeah. Like he went out and got an electric mower to, you ask. know, to to mow his tiny patch of grass that they mm-hmm. have in the front yard. And like, that's just something that you take for granted is like, it's really hard to get rid of grass mm-hmm. after the fact. It, it, and so even if you don't have the money to do the landscape right away, there are some things that you can do that Absolutely. will make a huge difference. You know, putting the, the base for the terrace down, you know, wow, those big machines are there. So they're not driving over your landscape when you're ready to do the terrace mm-hmm. in a year or two. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was fascinating for me to, to think about, okay, w- w- you know, what are some of these like simple things, you know, aside from water runoff and things that we just kind of naturally conform to. Although she's even better at that than I am. Like the grades, the landscapes, where it'll fit, what all that stuff is. I mean, she's just phenomenal at that. But, you know, thinking about just kind of simple things and having that conversation at the very beginning, like if you don't want this all to be grass and you don't want to mow it, then we just need to have this conversation about what we can put back. And, um, the five lot, uh, solar community that I did, Mm -hmm. um, was, was logged and they just left all the slash there and they just went through. And I, I mean, it was really inhumanely harvested. And as a result, we got a lot of buckthorn, which is super invasive and is growing in everything, but we also have wetlands and we can't do anything about it. So it just sort of like spreads and it's so frustrating. That's, that's a tricky
1: situation. Yeah, there's yeah. not a lot you can do when you're dealing with wetlands and invasive species. Yeah. That's why they get so out of control. No, I think it's great. I feel like as we were talking about the design the integrated design team. And you know, this I understand that landscapes typically when you're building a house, the landscape is is the sort of the last priority, but I would argue that it it really shouldn't be because you are really, it's not just a house, it's a site and it's a plot of land, whatever form it might take, that you are responsible for managing. And you have to think about what, you know, what is outside the perimeters of your property and how are you affecting that? And um, what are you putting into it? You know, uh, what are you responsible for? And good planning, like you just mentioned, um, factoring in some of those bigger uh, aspects of the landscape to help manage it sustainably down the line is a really smart way to go. And, and I think that, you um, you know, a, a, a truly integrated team would include a landscape architect. Um, and, I, and I know that's an added expense and I, and I get why that doesn't happen regularly, but, but I do think that the more we can look at um, house projects as site projects, the, the better the project is gonna be ultimately in terms of how it's managed.
0: Well, and I feel, um and we've talked about this, you know, this whole changing the value proposition, but um, you know, one of the things that I struggle with is, is the same Is that we, that it's often that you don't think past day one costs, Mm -hmm. right. It's the same with the whole healthy homes movement and having ventilation systems and thinking about the air quality within your home. Do you have to do that to build a house? No, legally. Should you do it? Absolutely. Should you do it even if you have a really leaky house? Yes, because the leaky is coming from other places, but we haven't come up with a way to quantify like days missed from work or, you know, a high CO2 concentration in your office, which makes you tired, which makes you not get as much done, um, you know, in the the home office environment or, you know, the first two years after a build, if you're building traditional construction a lot of those construction materials have toxins in them you know moisture resistant drywall has fungicide in it right that's why it is that way which means it off gases for a certain amount of time and so how do you get rid of those toxins without it being something that you breathe every day Mm -hmm. um but it's the same with the landscape is yes there's a cost to hiring an architect and a landscape architect and a team to put together your house. But in the long run, right. it should save money over time because maybe you're not spending the time mowing the grass or the gas for the mower or the water or watering the plants mm-hmm. or, you know, having to dig up something that you just put in a year ago to now put in the next phase. Right. And so you're like, redoing something that you already because did. you don't have
1: yeah you don't know plant material so you're not buying things that are going to make it without much care so I'm a big fan right. of zero which is you know
0: almost, I'm a huge fan yeah. of zero yeah. you know and that is important in the northeast yeah. where we have lots of water mm-hmm. but it's critical and some of the other climate zones in the United States for people to take that into account like yeah, what's this landscape and how much do I have to water it? And what kind of impact is that going to have on our, on our climate zone? Um, and at the same time, you know, how, w- what are you putting into your landscape right. to keep it looking that way? Yeah. And then how much time do you, do you spend in it? You know, like, is it, can you, can you do a small section that, you know, is, is this beautiful? Um, if you if you've spent much time, which you probably have spent way more time than I have, but I'm really interested in the whole idea of permaculture Mm -hmm. and everything and edible landscapes, which I find, you know, really fun. And that goes back to like, which bushes should be planted next to other bushes because of their content or what they put off or what they don't put off. And you know, that, that to me is, was really fantastic. And I, um, I don't have time to do a lot of that on my own. I've had gardens in the past and my husband is always like, you just don't have enough time to maintain it. Cause I always make it all organic and do all that stuff. And so then you gotta be out there and dealing with the weeds and, you know, um, but, uh, I don't have time to do that here since we moved to, to this house. And I've, I've realized that, but, um, there's a local company that takes food scraps mm-hmm. so that they don't end up in the, landfills. um, in the landfills. And in return for that you can get one five gallon bucket of compost every month Mm -hmm. that you have it picked up and so I got compost for the fruit trees that we have and the things that I can handle and maintain and like I feel really good about that and I don't have to do my own compost right because people are like oh I have done that before too and you know if your compost bin isn't the right consistency and it gets rained in and it gets sloppy and you don't turn it enough and you know like it's you know I feel
1: feel like thing it is the thing but I also I'm somebody that my compost quote-unquote pile is just a big pile of leaves that I just throw fruit scraps in and don't do much else and you know I'm lucky that I have a little piece of land that I can do that with but um, my main goal is to keep food scraps out of the landfill and so but I also don't particularly it's not that I don't have the time for it because I could make the time for it but I just don't feel the need to have a three post a three bin system that i have to check the ph and you know, temperature and, and like i'm i don't really i don't feel the need to do that my my goal is to not put food scraps into the landfill and i accomplish that and it doesn't have to be this huge undertaking you need a shovel and a place to dig a few holes now and then and that, that's how i go about it. it it rots it goes away you know um <laughs> i think uh oh, so there was a point you were making that i um The other opportunity there in the landscape is to attract wildlife and pollinators. And, um, I think, you know, having a team that can, you know, particularly in America, there's this real love affair with the expanse of green lawn. And that's a very hard thing to get away from. And there's an interesting history around it. Um, but we have educational opportunities as design teams to let people know what can be accomplished with, um, their, their practices, their choices in terms of landscape materials, um, and, and what might be, you know, I've had many a conversation with, with people who have been given a little guidance on, on their conditions and what they can plant successfully and what might draw wildlife. And, um, it really is quite exciting when people start to see it pay off. You know, oh, we've got these wonderful berries on this bush that you know, uh, all the birds come in the winter, and we just love it. And it doesn't take a lot to make some changes that have very positive repercussions. Um, and you know, if if you are privileged enough to be in a position to have money enough to do that, invest a little in your landscape. Uh, and I know that's not something everybody has. I'm not, you know. Um, But if you do, and you can give it some thought and and consideration, um, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to better the environment. Um, So I always encourage people to do it if they can.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, the thought about, you know, pollinators and birds and everything is, is so cool because a lot of people, and maybe, I don't know, I'm assuming this is not a New England type thing, but, you know, people want to attract those, you know, those types of animals and birds and insects, butterflies, bees and stuff to their properties. And they don't realize that grass is a is a monocrop, mm-hmm. so you know it does it, does it doesn't really attract things. no yeah it does none of those things right. so right. you know it's just like one expanse of the same thing now granted mine is an expansive clover i think there's more clover in my yard than there's well that's another grass. thing you know
1: it's like to accept the fact that uh it doesn't need to be a straight-up grass it can be i have the same thing i've i've got uh violas and i just let weeds happen it's green who cares? Why does it have to be this grass? You know? So (laughs) anyway,
0: yeah. Good stuff. Yes. Good stuff. Good stuff. It is good stuff. So, you know, I love hearing that your background is in, um, you know, in landscape.
1: Well, I think it gives me an appreciation for, I mean, I made a career change because um, by the time I was 38, I was in agony every day. I couldn't enjoy my work anymore because my back was killing me. I had two shoulder surgeries and uh, it was, imperative that I not do that until retirement. I was miserable. Um, So I have a deep appreciation for, and this is just landscaping, but any repetitive motion um, that you do eight hours a day is going to take its toll, no matter if it's in a factory or on a job site, you know, with plywood, whatever the form it takes, it can do a number on you. And so I have a very, very deep appreciation for, contractors who are out there every day busting their bodies up. Um, uh, it was interesting to to, talk, to just bring it back to the conversation I recently had with Mel Baser. Uh, it's, it's been on my mind a lot lately because of the model that they use. And um, the, the a big part of their goal is to help builders um, hone up on their estimating and job accounting skills so that... Um, when they're 65, they're not left with nothing but a broken body, you know, um, and their, their model for doing that is, is pretty impressive in my opinion. Um, and they've had great success. So anyway, I, I value, you know, I, I know what it is like to want to work with your hands. I really respect that. Um, it's a, it's craft. It's, I understand the sentiment of keeping craft alive because I feel like as a gardener, that was, that was a part of what I was doing. Um, and you know, it just has made me a, a much more informed uh, land steward, and uh, uh, it's just it's it's a uh, it's a skill set and and information I'm happy to have, um, and I do think that it has fed and not t- certainly design, uh, you know that's a big piece of it too. Um, it's, it's you know what I was doing was all about aesthetics, so um, I think that sometimes the serendipitous route. Leads you to a place that you have a deeper understanding or an appreciation for um, the people that you wind up working with in in a totally different setting, right? Um, I love talking with builders because I feel like I just respect them so much. Um, And I love talking with architects because, you know, um, aesthetics are very important to me. Um, I'm a painter and, you know, I devoted 22 years to beautifying landscapes. So both those things kind of, to me makes, you know, they come together. Um, uh, so,
0: well, I think there's a really good tie in there too, which is that aesthetics are just as important for sustainability as, um, you know, the product that, that you produce because, you know, green building got a really bad rap in the seventies. Cause they built a lot of really ugly things, mm-hmm. right. Because they were trying to understand the science behind it. And they did some things incorrectly because they were really changing a whole system of building, you know, and so that we still hear all the time, like, Oh, buildings need to breathe. Buildings need to breathe and all this stuff. And it's like, well, no, not exactly. That's, that's no. No, they they don't. <laughs> not in the way you're thinking. Yeah, not in the way that you're you're thinking. And mm-hmm. and sure, I mean, the reason we have some of the 1800s farmhouses is because they were wide open systems, and they dried out, and that kept the structure itself in in decent condition. But. At the same time, we're killing our environment with climate change. If you live in one of those totally uninsulated houses and in, you know, in Maine specifically, but in the Northeast, you know, we have fuel oil. And so you're just like pumping fuel oil into the environment. And at the rate that I think, I can't remember what year it was, but in one of the mid two thousands the cost of fuel oil was $5 a gallon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people can't afford that. I mean, I was really young at the time working uh, for another architect. You know, my husband was younger in his current profession. We didn't have that much money, you know? and it was, we had a 1400 square foot house. So we weren't talking, we had anything big. And I mean, it cost us like $4,000 to heat that house that year. And that was a lot of money, you know, that, that people just, they don't live that way anymore. They, they can't afford to, to do that. And, you know, we can't afford, you know, having a, a retirement population that's going into retirement, they can't afford on fixed incomes to, to have that kind of, um, onslaught. So especially anybody who comes to me, you know, looking to build their last house, their mm-hmm. retirement house, you know, it's, it's aesthetics and has to be beautiful. Cause they want to, you know, you want to be happy coming Absolutely. home and that's both indoor and, and exterior. And also, you know, you know
1: if for resale value and, um, you know, it's been said many, many, many times by many people in different professions, but if it's beautiful, people want it to stick around, right? So in, in by investing in the beauty of a place, you are investing in its longevity. There's no question about that. I mean, these ugly houses that uh, that you were mentioning, you know, how many of those are still around or haven't been severely, you know, uh, gutted and changed and just because they didn't stand the test of time, um,
0: well, it makes you want to look at the real estate culture. Like, why do we move every five to yeah. seven years? Right? right. Like, if you, if you, sure, job opportunities and the way the world works now is, you know, there, people are more nomadic, you know, you don't, marry the neighbor and, you know, stay next door. Right. Like, so, so so we're, we, we definitely move around a lot more, but if you're just kind of jumping from thing to thing, like what well, was so bad about this house that you lived in that you felt like you needed to upgrade to 2,500 right. square feet and why is 2,500 square feet what everybody thinks that they want, because those are the things that keep turning over. I mean, there's these great little developments um, along the coast that are a phenomenal neighborhoods they're like 900 square feet you know and there are people raising kids in 900 square feet that's and they interesting just, they love i'm, I'm having such a hard time finding small houses i'm i'm actually they a, don't exist they don't either,
1: exist you
0: have either to have we've treated we either have traded them in torn them down because yeah. we thought we needed to have something bigger or the other reason they don't exist is because those people like those spaces and they stay they in them. Stay, so they just right. don't sell them. Right, they right, don't sell right. them until, you know, grandma passes away yeah. and nobody in the family wants the house and then boom that, I mean, in that little neighborhood I was talking about in Falmouth, um, I have a client there. We built a kitchen addition because they actually did need a little bit more space mm-hmm. in their house. And so we built a little kitchen addition on the back and the house next door went for sale. And it was, I'm gonna like, thousand square feet 1100 square feet maybe and um it was gone like immediately for almost seven hundred thousand dollars right like how do you buy less than a quarter of an acre less than a thousand square feet for that and it's because this neighborhood is just i mean it's it's got great access it's near the water you know i mean they couldn't see the water yeah. from where they were at but it's just you know there's And we forget to build our neighborhoods around what people want. And, um, I'm friends with, uh, Corinne Watson, Mm -hmm. the tiny homes of Maine. Um, she's phenomenal and should have her on again to talk about what she's up to. Um, but she gets a lot of inquiries about tiny homes uh-huh. that people don't necessarily want a tiny home on wheels that they can move around, but they, they want, want a small, small structure. Yeah. And there's just nothing, there's nothing out there. You know, it's so you know?
1: interesting. My place is 850 square feet and it's a two-story, uh well, it's a story and a half with a lofted bedroom situation. And I live on this little ramshackle road. Um, it's a bunch of fishing the uh, shacks that, um, you know, they're, they were originally built probably in the forties. And um, although my place is from 1930, so maybe even a little earlier than that, um, I'm the only one that's got a second floor because the, the the guy I bought the house from was a carpenter and he, he put some money into it and he made it a year round um, you know, residents, whereas these others, though people live there year round, I, they weren't really built to be year round. So they're, they're pretty dumpy and they're, um, they are right on this river and and it has a real history to the place has a history. Um, and I would say all of them are about the same size. I have probably more room than any of them. So they're probably more like, you know, 700 square feet. Um, but boy, they go quickly when they go up for sale, right? And I think it's because, and it's it's interesting because everybody that lives here, there's eight houses total and every single one of them is, is has a single occupant. So there are people out there looking for small homes and it's unfortunate that they have to be so criminally made, right? I mean, and these 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 places are very old, you know, they leak like sieves. I'm, I'm in a better boat um, just because I, you know, the guy that put so much work into it, but, um, I have since tried. To, I want to replicate this scenario, and it is not easy to find. Uh, and, and it is very unfortunate that it should not be so hard to find a well-made small home, you know, yeah. suitable for yeah. one.
0: <laughs> it's like they, they don't exist. an impossible
1: there. demand, without having to, you know, have it built, and and that can be cost prohibitive. You know.
0: Yeah, we've so. been. Um, Patrice and I, uh, Patrice is the the builder who who worked with me on the on the five lot community that we did. We have always been talking since the very beginning about small homes. And so hopefully that's kind of the next phase because even since 2015 in the last five years, that's just that's what we keep getting asked for and, and asked think- about. And do you have any of these? Yeah. And they just, you
1: know, they don't They're exist. Out there. And and I think there's a nice middle ground between the 2000s square foot home in the tiny house there's there's a nice little in between there's there. a nice eight eight hundred square feet it's a really nice size
0: you know eight hundred square feet by yourself mm-hmm. uh it's like eleven hundred square feet you know for for two people yeah. like fourteen hundred square feet maybe you got a, a family or you need a guest room or you have a home office right. or you have something you know so, right. so there's this really there's this really great small size that that was the norm fifty years ago and we've just it just keeps creeping up, creeping up, creeping up. And you know, unfortunately that's not making better space. And so um I wish you luck on your search. Well thank you.
1: I thank you very much. I will find it. I won't leave this one until I find the next one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's that's a goal. (laughs) So and then someone else will snap that one up right away. Because that's what they're looking for. Yeah. So But, well I appreciate you coming on I know you're a busy lady so I don't want to keep you all day thank you for having um, me
1: Emily it's always a pleasure to chat with you so, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we're working together these days
0: I am too <laughs> it's been a pleasure uh, getting to know you better and you know as an architect landscape hasn't been something that I spent a ton of time on although environmentally I think it's just always been something that I really cared about so it's Really interesting to me okay. to talk to. I'm glad to you. It's interesting to me it.
1: too. And, so. and it's it's like I said earlier, it's rare that
0: I get a chance to chat about it. So appreciate the invite. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guest, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out Emily at Motramarch dot You can find me on Instagram, Motrum A R C H, or on LinkedIn, Emily Motram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy.